wrestling, talking about wrestling. Men and men punching each other in the face. It's a race to the top, the top of the space. First place to punch your man. Sometimes winning. In the face. Talking about wrestling, talking about wrestling. Who are these people breaking open each other's hands? Sometimes they wear pink and blue or gold, sometimes they wear red. Sometimes they retire, sometimes they did. That's cold, man. Yeah, I know, but what you gonna do? Nothing, I guess. For real, cause that's life. Life in the ring. No doubt. And anyway, when they die, they come back to life. And then it's better than when they were dead. Because they're breaking new hands and new legs. And gender politics and race politics and boundaries. And anyway, none of it's real. You sure? Well, not in a physical violent sense. Hit it, hit it. Okay. Welcome to The World According to Wrestling, I'm Dan Higgins. We've spoken a lot about characters and stereotypes in this show and their similarities with other TV shows. In fact, wrestling seems to get away with a lot more simply because it's wrestling. At many times on this show we've talked about how wrestling is basically just one big soap opera in which every storyline ends in a fight. There are love stories, there are weddings, there are funerals. It's less of a wrestling show and more of a TV show about a wrestling show. In TV terms, it's actually more than that. WWE has a prolific output. WWE often says that at over 1,200 episodes, the flagship show Monday Night Raw is the longest running weekly episodic TV show of all time. Now the words weekly and episodic are key in that sentence. If you look at soap operas, which screen usually around five nights a week, it's not comparable. Coronation Street in the UK, for example, has had over 9,000 episodes. A soap opera Guiding Light in USA, which finished in 2009, had a staggering 15,700 episodes. And then if you look at other weekly shows that aren't episodic in nature, things like for example news shows or Top of the Pops, WWE is still way behind in output. But even within their own careful segmentation, they are prolific. And a key difference between WWE and other scripted shows is that most of the time, their output is live. And as we've seen with live episodes of EastEnders, that creates a much more unpredictable and hard to control environment. Now unlike other TV shows, the writers come under heavy scrutiny in wrestling, sometimes because the fans' favourite wrestler isn't winning matches or isn't being pushed as a prominent character to the level they would like them to be, and at its worst, it could be because it's made you embarrassed to watch wrestling because it's too stupid or ridiculous. There's a storyline where a very old woman gave birth to a hand, for example, and several other embarrassing things that just aren't worth getting into here. And so the writers are blamed, sometimes perhaps unfairly. So who are these people? How are the shows written? What is the creative room like? How does the process work? And what is the lifestyle of a wrestling writer? We spoke to former WWE writer, Court Bauer. In college, I was uh, one of my focuses was on writing, so I did a lot of screenplays, and then found myself drifting during college to pro wrestling, and got into professional wrestling behind the scenes while in college uh, in 1998. From there, kind of uh, still would try to write things on the side, but uh, my primary focus was on professional wrestling from an early age. And how does writing for wrestling differ from other TV writing? Well, in wrestling, I would say the, the creative changes uh, radically from draft to draft. You don't really sometimes set 
the episode until it's sometimes even on the air. Uh, you're still rewriting it, especially in the WWE, things will come up where uh, instead of a showrunner, you have the chairman and uh, he will make uh, abrupt changes. And so that then has to be reflected in the script. So you have, uh, you have to be nimble because you have to also be aware of continuity issues, things that are impacted because you've had a, a, a match change or you've had a interview change and what he says changes and then there's a ripple effect. How does that impact the rest of uh, a two or three hour show? Sure. And for those who don't know, would you explain the sort of setup for being a writer in WWE and, and just kind of your day-to-day life? Sure. There's multiple roles uh, in the creative writing team on the WWE staff. There's the head writer or the lead writer. They oversee the day-to-day creative for their show or their uh, team. And when I was there, there was uh, different teams for different shows. Uh, now they've kind of brought them all together, and uh, there's just a big pool of writers. But you had a head writer, and he would then come up with singular vision for the show, and that uh, he would feel you'd have success pitching to the chairman, and then you'd have uh, senior writers or more tenured writers, and then you had uh, writers, just staff writers, and you had associate writers, you had writers' assistants that were just out of university. Uh, and then you had one to two professional wrestling minds. They were either former wrestlers or personalities on camera, now working in a senior capacity to help lend wrestling logic, psychology, and the nuances of professional wrestling to a writing team that often was not experienced in that end. They were storytellers. They were writers, some having great success on network TV in the States. Uh, some fresh out of college, some were super fans. It was an eclectic mix of a staff. As for your day-to-day operations, I'll guide you through the whole week. So the week kind of really starts for you on a Wednesday. You've just flown back from the shows, and you're flying typically commercial. If you're lucky and you have the good fortune of uh, being uh, able to be on the WWE corporate jet, you'll fly back overnight, Tuesday night into Wednesday on the corporate jet. Uh, but most fly commercial, and you will fly home on Wednesday and uh, get in around midday, depending on if you're if it's a coast-to-coast flight or something, it might be a little later. Uh, then around late in the afternoon, you will be reporting into the office, and you'll have a casual few hours where you're starting to plot your pitches for the chairman for later that week. You have your own little pitches. You email within your little team. They share theirs with you, and then the lead writer kind of whittles it down to what he feels is the best options for the show to present to the chairman and the head of the creative department. When I was there with Stephanie McMahon, now it's Paul Levesque. And so then Thursday and Friday are meetings with the chairman, with the head of creative, sometimes other uh, creative teams, uh, whether it was the SmackDown team or the ECW team in my day. And you're collaborating, you're working and you're pitching Vince, and you have to be quick because he might hate 10 ideas in a row, and he expects you to continue to pump him with ideas. And uh, so you're kind of an idea generator for those two days. Then by Friday into Saturday, you're now writing the rough draft of the show. You're filling out the skeleton of the script, and you're also communicating with the talent that's uh, involved with the script, the wrestlers, and you're explaining what the concept is. Throughout Wednesday on, you're, you're also getting texts, emails, phone calls from talent with them with their own pitches for the next week or in general. Uh, 
inactive talents reaching out so they can find a way to get back on TV. They're pushing. So you're, you're constantly just, you're working long days. You're on call like a surgeon, uh, just 24 seven. And then, uh, Saturday into Sunday, you're refining the show. There might be a conference call that might go a few hours to review the scripts with the chairman or the head of creative. And then you're fine tuning the script more. If you don't have a pay-per-view on Sunday, you might still fly out Sunday night, depending on where Monday Night Raw is. Then Monday, Tuesday, it's TV days, 12 to 15 hour days, if not longer, producing the whole show. And a lot of that starts around 12 o'clock. You'll have a production meeting. We'll go over the whole show. A lot of changes will happen. A lot of agents, they're kind of, uh, they're called producers now, but they are kind of like stunt choreographers. Uh, They're old wrestlers that have a lot of experience, are very talented. They can help come up with uh, ways for matches to end, the finish of a match. So they'll help you fine-tune that and craft the best outcome that the creative team wants, that Vince McMahon wants. And after that meeting, you'll rewrite the script. You'll be designated maybe a, a segment from the show that you'll be in charge of writing. And then you get with the talent involved with that segment and then start zeroing in on what works for them, what works for you and the office. And then you you get Vince or you get Paul Levesque or Stephanie to give the blessing that, or the head writer if they're not available, to sign off on that direction. And then you start either producing it or you go into rehearsals. Rehearsals will be a few hours and uh, that will go sometimes up until they open doors. And once those doors open, everyone's running to the back. And then you have maybe a few minutes to grab your only meal of the day or your second meal of the day. And in that case, be possibly your, your only meal of the day or your last meal. <laughs> and you'll then scramble to wherever you need to be for the live production. And then uh, you're there until the show is over. And you get the code. They have a code. Uh, they let through the walkie-talkies to let you know that it's, it's, it's okay. Now you can, you can leave in your rental car and either head to the next town or head to the hotel and that you are dismissed. And you'll repeat this on Tuesday. Now, more than when I was there, I mean, the amount of work you have because you have a network and they are, they, I mean, the volume of content they're pushing out is enormous. The demands likely have expanded and the creative team is much bigger than when I was there. So uh, when I look at it, when I was there, I was blown away how big it was and how many great minds you had and so many, so many great towns and people. When you look at where, where it is now, it's, it's, they have maybe 25 to 30 guys on uh, staff writing from home, meaning Stanford, Connecticut, or on the road. And it, it's, it's, it's considerable. It's a considerable staff, but they need that because they're pumping out a lot of content. Just going back to the writing and the process of it, how much of a say do... Um, you said earlier that wrestlers would be calling you and inactive wrestlers be calling you up to pitch ideas. How much of a say do wrestlers have in their characters and storylines? You know, it, it all depends. Uh, in my time there, there was a lot of participation and tenured guys had a lot. Vince would just kind of lean on them. If the other wasn't feeling something then he respected that would back off. Now the climate's changed a little bit, and I think it's actually now they're allowing a little bit more dialogue, a little bit more uh, back and forth with talent than they had in the last decade, which is good. But you need that. It's a collaborative effort, and you need to engage the talent to be involved with it because if they're not involved and they're just showing up, being told, here's your lines and here's who's winning and who's losing, they're not invested in their character and looking for ways to elevate it and you see the erosion of electricity in their performance, and you see a lack of evolution in, in the characters you're seeing. 
just that spark begins to miss, be missing, and they're almost like zombies. They're out there, but they're not really, you know, just they're not. Their brain is turned off, and I, I think that that kind of stifles creativity and imagination overall the quality of the show. So uh, I understand that's changed a lot in the last maybe even less than a year. So it's good to see that they they've made those corrections. That was former WWE writer Court Bauer. We'll be coming back to him a bit later in the show. As we've just discussed, wrestlers often pitch ideas, especially if they're not getting TV time. So what happens if the writers aren't taking your ideas? Well, quite a while ago now, we spoke to Brad Maddox. He played the general manager of Monday Night Raw in 2013, and then had quite a long hiatus before being fired in late 2015 for calling the crowd cocky pricks. It seemed like an overreaction compared to what others had said. But prior to that situation, Maddox had been at home for months. Soon after he left WWE, we spoke to him about what that was like. But I think that they probably were just going to give me the one promo and then have uh, Ryback, you know, kill me. And that was going to be that. But I think I think the, the vague word that I heard through the, through the grapevines was that Vince kind of liked my promo ability, so I think I just kind of carved out a niche for myself. After like the third or fourth squash match, I, I know I, I realized what was going on and that it wasn't going to lead anywhere, but I just I just didn't speak up and, and I did I felt like I should just take what I was given and like show that I was grateful or whatever and and uh, that's certainly a regret that I have of not taking my own career into my own hands and being more proactive about it and making sure I went up to the right people and, and getting getting more. Sure. Then you landed a, quite a major role in terms of one of the main roles on the broadcast, the general manager role. How did that come about in terms of you being told and how was it first revealed to you that you were going to be general manager of Raw? That was just one of those things that was like slowly progressing. I'd hear something one week about... Oh, there was a pitch this week about making you GM, and then it, a couple of weeks would go by, and I'd find out something else, another rumor, and then a couple of weeks would go by, and finally they just kind of, well, they made me assistant GM first, assistant to Vicky, and I stuck with that for a while, and I, I never really heard about things ahead of time. Like the the night they made me GM, I, you know, I found out that day, and uh, it was always just kind of just uh, just waiting to hear about mm. things. I don't know if you've heard Mick Foley and, and Stone Cold's comments recently about that the idea that the script is constraining storylines at the moment and that in the, in their day they went out and they had like a loose kind of bullet points and they went out and it was all about what happened and the moment and something magical might happen or it might all fall on its face. But now it right. seems there's a restriction because the script is so tightly formed. What's your views on that? Well, I, I mean, I wasn't around back then, so I don't know exactly what they were given. Uh, I know that s some people have the balls to uh, 
to take it, the script that they're given and make it their own. You know, like I know John Cena doesn't follow a script, and and I remember that CM Punk didn't follow a script, and I think it's really just the guys who are willing to go up to Vince and say, you know, this is this script's great, and I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it my own. So I don't know if guys are just afraid to veer from that path. I know in my case. I did try to follow the script, and that's another regret that I have, that I didn't just make it into my own words and, and to make it more of a bullet point thing. I, and I, I definitely think that I should have done that because there were a lot of pro, uh, you know, some long promos where I'm just trying to memorize stuff and I'm trying to get every word right. And like a couple of times, I, I would ask the writers, well, do I, I, mean, do I have to say this? And this doesn't feel like me. And they, and they would always say, well, this is... This comes straight from Vince. This, these are his words exactly. So yeah, you kind of you have to. I would, and I always bought that instead of like going to Vince myself. So I, I don't I don't know exactly why things are, are changed. Okay, let's talk about when you finished being general manager of Raw, and then you were away for quite a while. At that point, that's where all the cave stuff happened, right? But how do you come up with gimmicks when you're in that situation? Was it the onus very much on you to come up with the stuff, or are you just waiting? A little bit of both. So they fired me off TV as GM, and then shortly after, they stopped traveling me. And I actually sat at home for eight or nine months. I obviously wasn't very happy about that. So, there, you know, I would pitch stuff, and sometimes I would get feedback, sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I would hear ideas for me, but you know it's it's t- it's really tough at that point because you're not there, you're not no one's seeing your face every week, and they've got a whole roster full of guys that they're trying to write storylines for. So it's almost impossible if you're not even traveling and you can't work with the writers, you can't work with Vince or anyone. So I did what I could, and and I'm a pretty creative person. I you know like I, I like to mess around with characters and try different accents and stuff. And so the the cave thing was just. A plot I came up with to as like a publicity stunt sort of thing, and the story that I was trying to tell is that I lost, I, you know, I lost my mind in this cave, like being stuck in this cave, and then you know you find out that I'm not in a cave and I'm just a giant asshole who pulled off this ridiculous stunt to get attention. But you know, I kind of had lost my mind, but it wasn't from being stuck in a cave. It was from losing my dream job as being the GM and. It was from falling off the mountaintop and, and being stuck at home now. It was just kind of driving me crazy that I, I couldn't have my, my dream career anymore. So that I was trying to tell that story, and, and I wanted to take like a realistic approach to it, and I wanted to, to get people hooked on something. So I, I, I felt like I pulled that off, and I got some good response from the fans, or you, know, or, you know, a lot of angry response when they found out it wasn't real. And uh, I was I was hoping that the writers would pick that up and run with it, but they never did. Was there any gimmicks ever pitched to you that you didn't want to do? No, not really. I wouldn't say there was all that much, really, that was pitched for me. I would have ideas, and I would pitch them, and then maybe I'd hear certain things back that I I didn't like because, you know, it wasn't my idea or... Or it got shot down, and and that would uh, I would be down about that for a week or two, and then I'd have to bounce back and come up with something else. But I think I would have been willing, certainly after you know a long layoff, I was pretty much ready to do just about anything. What was the plan for just before your release? You were in a tag team with Adam Rose. What was the plan with that, and how did you find working with Adam? So me and Adam got started. They just kind of put us together in tag matches on these live event loops. So we, we just started messing around, having fun, doing ridiculous stuff. Like we, we'd come out with towels wrapped around our waists and pretend like we were uh, a couple of hard body 
prima donnas, just having fun, and it kind of caught some traction. So we kind of threw pitches in uh, based off just getting a little reaction off of that, and we, we tried some different ideas. And that week that I got fired, actually, me and Adam uh, had a different pitch that we were working on that Vince seemed to like, but uh, of course that that didn't get a chance to happen. Would the route for you have been to restart your character in NXT, and were you looking to do that at any point? Yeah, I wouldn't have minded it. I didn't really push for it. Um, I asked some people about it, but I, it's not something I really push for because uh, when I when I came back up on the road, I I started trying to work with Vince directly as much as I could. So I, I figured, you know, if I have access to Vince and he's willing to talk to me, I, I you know I might as well pitch stuff for Raw. How much access do you have with Vince in general? Is he on the road all the time? Is he always available to be spoken to? Yeah, Vince Vince is always there. I mean, he's there, you know, every week, and usually he's he's pretty accessible. It's just a matter of of uh, being willing to go up and knock on his door. And I think a, a lot of times people are nervous about just doing that. But but I found was a pleasant surprise for me that once I showed him that I had the nerve to come to him with ideas, that he was very accessible and, and very willing to to talk about ideas. And and he enjoys. I think he likes that when people go knock on his door. And how. Did you end up being the turkey on Jimmy Fallon? <laughs> I I think that I think maybe I was picked for that because everyone else was out of the country. Right. Not sure because uh, they had the, Euro- the European tour at the time. Uh, yeah, I th- I don't know if it was just random or what. I never I never was told why. I just uh, they packed packed me up and sent me to New York. It was it was a fun experience. Yeah. I, I kind of thought ahead of time that they were going to give me like a full turkey head to wear, and then I got there and saw the outfit, and I'm you know like I'm wondering where the rest of it is. But it was a fun time. What's the highlight of your wrestling career so far? I guess the personal highlight would be getting to do promos with uh, with, with Vince and and Triple H and Stephanie. I get you know, I got to work with the, you know the the founders and the leaders of the company for a while because I didn't I didn't really have much in-ring success you know I had some, had four or five squash matches so I, I didn't have a lot of great moments in the ring but I certainly got to work with the most important people in the company and Paul Heyman as well was a really great guy to work with so those are things that I will remember most. Sure you've shown like a real capability of like with your promos and with your videos and the in-ring stuff like acting is that a side of things that you'd like to pursue i'm going to be heavily pursuing acting at this point yes i don't think that i'm done wrestling but it my focus is is definitely switching i kind of developed a love for acting a lot while i was at fcw and we would do dusty Rhodes promo class every week and dusty's a big fan of movies and acting and and so I kind of got away from the wrestling promo pretty quickly in his class because I kind of got bored with that. You know, you have to you have to come up with something new every week. And I got tired of talking about wrestling angles and stuff like that. So I started diving into uh, character work and doing different scenes. Or sometimes I would just copy, like I'd copy a Leonardo DiCaprio scene and, and try and perform it in front of my peers. Or I would make up a character or make up a scene or do something dramatic. And so I kind of developed a passion for that. And it's something that I've been waiting to pursue for a while now. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to do that. If you could go back now, what would you have done differently? Would it be the talking to Vince aspect or the other things as well? Uh, yeah, it, it, if I had it to do again, I would have gone to Vince from day one and, and said, hey, I'm Brad Maddox. Do you know who I am? Do you heard, you know, do you know about my experience? Do you know that I've been in your company for three years now and, and that I'm a trained wrestler? You know, I, I would have I would have communicated better and I would have taken my own career in, into my own hands and instead of hoping that or thinking that the writers were going to do my job for me. Absolutely. 
Okay, so that was a wrestler's point of view. Now let's return to former WWE writer Court Bauer. We asked him about what Brad had told us about his experiences pitching to writers and how the writers felt about that, and whether there was any guilt not moving forward with those ideas. I always felt the best policy was honesty and saying, hey, you know, keep pitching or hey, he's never going to go for something like this. You know, I pitched it, you know, I, I can't keep pitching the same thing because he's, he's going to say the same thing. So give me something different. You know, don't be afraid to go out there. And, and I try to guide them so they could find what they were looking for or find an opportunity. And some people were responsive to that. Some just were stubborn. Week after week, pitched the same damn thing. It's like, he's not going to go for that, you know, or the head writer's not going to even let it go to him. So you have to not die on that hill and be so in love with one idea. Because even as a writer, it's hard to be rejected when you're a creative person, but it's the realities of the game. The wrestlers are suggestors. The writers are suggestors. And if he doesn't like one idea, you better hit him with 10 other ideas and not have to be married to any of them because the reality is you're going to make this more of a personal thing and it's going to crush you. Whereas if you just see this as business and, hey, he doesn't like that idea, well, i got 10 other ideas and they're all unique, well, that will give you success at WWE. You can't push back with your talent unless you have earned the right to have that consideration from Vince and, and senior management. If you're drawing money and you've figured out how to get yourself over and they will value you. If you're popping ratings and if you're drawing money, they're going to appreciate your feedback because they understand that you know what's good for your character. But you have to earn that role. And I've seen a lot of guys fall short of that, not realizing their own value to the company. You know, it's hard to say, but you have to pay your dues in a different ways. Like you have to reach that point where you're valued and appreciated to give them sometimes that pushback. Now, you can always pitch ideas, but you can't give them that pushback until you're at that certain level, maybe even that rarefied air of a semi-made event. Yeah, that's a good point. Many people uh, say wrestling is best storyline-wise when you kind of question what's real. What I'm talking about is like the CM Punk pipe bomb, the Matt Hardy edge and Lita situation, the Joey Styles quitting, that kind of this story. Is that something you'd agree with? It all depends on the moment, the, the circumstances, and how it's executed. Edge, Lita, and Matt Hardy, to me, was very compelling. And it was uh, a real story that fell into uh, this unique wrestling world, then told the story in a different way on WWE TV, and it created an opportunity to, to take Edge, and it was like there was a piece of Edge always missing, a piece of the puzzle always missing in Edge as a top star. And this was that missing piece of the puzzle, and it just lit that spark, and he exploded. And he never looked back. He became a huge star in 2005 because of something that was based in the reality. Similar to what happened with the New World Order. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash defect to WCW. And following a wave of a lot of WWF defections, Hulk Hogan and Macho and Big Boss Man and several other guys, 
And the narrative in WCW, because there were so many loyal fans of WCW, was, man, what's all these guys from WWF coming in? And uh, there's naturally a brewing war between these two leagues, and they were able to tell that story in a new, unique way that played off of that. And people were, you know, they knew it was scripted, but there was something that rung true to them. Those are the ways to do it. And then you have the, the more crass, the less refined version that I, I think has been very, it's poorly executed and it never works as a guy goes out there and lazily says, hey, I'm shooting, brother, and then says something. And it's just like, okay, you've totally taken me out of the moment. Instead of trying to present the same message in a nuanced way, you're just now, you're, you're saying these words that are supposed to be, okay, we're, this isn't supposed to be happening. It takes the wind out of the sails for the viewers at home because wrestling's built on suspension of disbelief. And when you say, hey, official timeout, we're now talking real. I don't want to see someone in a movie do that. I don't want to see it in a sport. I don't want to see it anywhere. It, 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 there's a disconnect creatively in terms of a, an experience watching it at home. There's always a lot of criticism of writers when something goes wrong or something isn't doing very well or someone isn't doing very well. And people are quick to blame creative. How do you feel about that? I think less now because I, th- I think more people, such as myself, are you know doing these, this podcast thing and kind of explain the process. So I think you know, in the, the mid-2000s, it was a lot of scrutiny over the writers and, God, they've destroyed the show. And now I think with people becoming more aware of the process – and who ultimately is guiding it? Who's ultimately micromanaging it? It's not, it's not even a Stephanie Levesque thing. It's not a Paul Levesque thing. It's a Vince McMahon thing. You know, there's so many great directors that have done great movies, like Martin Scorsese. We also did Shutter Island, which I thought was terrible. <laughs> so, you know, Vince is not bulletproof. And so he is the showrunner. He is guidance. He is micromanagers. He is approving of most segments he is sitting in every meeting he's not sitting on an island he bought just uh phoning it in he is very much still hands-on proactive with his sleeves rolled up producing and overseeing every sunday monday and tuesday night if there's a pay-per-view on sunday and so i think people are more aware of that so the scrutiny isn't like scrutiny isn't what it once was on you know i really don't see anyone tracing oh those fucking writers it's more of, oh, my God, you know, they're, if they're going to be negative and, and condemn something. I see it's on Vince now more than the, than the writers. I don't see the writers getting it like they used to. Sure. How do you handle, like, some of the more out-there characters to make them successful but not overplay it? So people like The Undertaker, obviously, is a remarkable success, but also people like The Hurricane or when you look at Finn Balor's alter ego, for example. How do you deal with some of the out-there characters that are less... Athletes. Well, I'm not saying Finn Balor's not an athlete, but do you know what I mean? Like the boogeyman type character. How do you kind of make that work in the kind of a, a scripted reality? Well, there's going to be always those off-the-wall characters. You know, it's almost... Uh, you need one. It's, it's kind of like chemistry. It's like you have to have the right amount of it. If you have too much of it, then your show turns into the Muppets and there's just chaos and it's all outrageous and outlandish and doesn't work. At the right moment, at the right time... Donald Trump sitting there and the boogeyman pops up from behind, I think that will always put a smile on someone's face. It's just like, it's so ridiculous. And, and part of it was that, you know, no one took the boogeyman as seriously a horror villain or it was done with a wink, you know? And I think there was a time when that character would have been portrayed as a, this diabolical, monstrous villain, but that time has gone on. And Undertaker, like Ric Flair, got to a certain point where his character evolved and matured and had so much TV time where... You didn't look at him like the true dead man. It was a different thing. Uh, the mystique was different, and you respected him. 
I don't think many people look at The Undertaker like they did in 1991 when, you know, it was just a totally different time and he was fresh and new to us all. So it's a case-by-case thing, but it's also, it's a timing thing. And when you write it, who they're playing off of, it's how long they've been on TV. Some of these characters, typically these outlandish characters, have a very short shelf life. They don't last very long. And they're special attractions. Most special attractions shouldn't be on TV every week. You know, I always would argue Great Khali should not be on the show every week. Now, people say, of course, because he's a terrible wrestler. It's like, no, he could. He was a fantastic attraction because he was so unique, different, big powerhouse lifter from India that was, you know, upwards of seven foot six inches tall. Massive man. But if you see him every week, he's less impressive. And, of course, you know, his wrestling was limited. So, you know, you can only do the chop. And so week after week, you see that it's going to get old fast. And that's that's what happens to a lot of the guys. Big show. I think he was impacted the most of the last 20 years, well, 15 years by that. And it also speaks to The Undertaker's ability to, uh, for, for up until recently, be a regular character, constantly evolving, uh, but stay over the whole time. And it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a real, people might praise the character and everything, but it's the, it's the person behind The Undertaker, Mark House, that did a fantastic job with establishing that character and keeping him over for decades. How do you feel about the state of wrestling right now? Are you excited about it? You know, it's, it, I am because of the, of the level of access. You know, I, I've looked at down periods, be it the mid-90s, before the Monday Night War here in the States, or in the aftermath of the Monday Night War when there was a real lull. And you really, you would have to really search high and low for something cool to watch. And I think a lot of people just gave up and flipped over to UFC because there was a lot of the similar qualities at the time. But now, I mean, within a few clicks, you have access to New Japan World. Within a few clicks, you can have access to Progress Wrestling on, on Pivot. You, you have access to all this stuff, and now you have Flow Slam coming up to be a streaming solution for all these companies to put their content out there. Is, is it viable? Is it feasible? We'll see. Uh, but you have the WWE Network where you can, you know, just within a few clicks, access your favorite memories from your childhood or watch all this new original content like the 205 Live show. We live in a time where it's really, it's such a great time to be a fan, to be someone in the business, to be a wrestler because there's such an appetite. WWE's, I can't remember them signing up so many people across the board like they have. I mean, it's a great time. And there's a lot of companies. You have Lucha Underground, Ring of Honor. Uh, new Japan is coming to the United States in some capacity, some sustained uh, capacity in uh, 2017. So all these companies are really branching out. They have new ways to make money, and you have direct access to them. And I think that's a fantastic thing. But there's always going to be some winners and losers in this. How many winners, how many losers, you never know. I hope for, for so many reasons, I hope to see Japan continue to revitalize itself. New Japan's done a great job. Can now the new ownership of NOAA help with Japan? Can the United Kingdom hold up with, like I said, the WWE Death Star hovering above it? Is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing for the region? Uh, because to me, the, my, my favorite talent I've seen over the last five years, they're just the total package. They're, they can talk. They actually know how to dress themselves as characters that are different, unique, and they can really wrestle. It's coming from the United Kingdom. I've told friends, you know, and just, just sitting there having a beer, if I were to get back in wrestling because I was once a promoter, I would be like Jim Barnett, a famous pro wrestling promoter that saw opportunity in Australia and went all the way out there and he ran the whole country. I said, I would have I would have doubled down, I would have moved to the United Kingdom and it would have set up shop because there was just this proliferation of great talent, 
there's a great demand from the fans, and that's without even having television. And if you can luck into television, wow, you, know, you really have something special. Now, can the United Kingdom handle what's coming up in 2017 with WWE? It, it might be a great thing. It might be a bad thing. I don't know. Attention. 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 Amazing. 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 Incredible. As I mentioned earlier, as a writer in the wrestling industry, you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. What does the world of wrestling journalism think of them? We spoke to Ryan Satin from Pro Wrestling Sheet. I'm interested in what you think of WWE kind of using the topic of drugs in storylines. Um, like previously, that's been quite a taboo topic when people have been suspended. But recently, we've seen that come into storylines more with Rollins talking about Roman Reigns and Randy Orton like saying no enhancement needed about Brock Lesnar. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on WWE's involvement of drugs in storylines and whether that's something that you think that they're welcome to doing more of or whether it will remain a taboo topic, really. I mean, I personally love it. You know, I, I think that when you blur the lines between reality and fiction and you as the viewer are watching and you're not sure if it's real or fake, then that's when WWE has done their job. Those are the ones where you remember them forever. And I personally, yeah, I, I, I believe that they should do that more. I feel like they're not doing it enough. Yeah, and that's interesting because my next question was, would you say that wrestling is at its most compelling when those boundaries are blurred? If I was a writer and I was working for WWE, that would literally be all I was pitching. I would be pitching all these storylines based on real things. Yeah, I mean, I think they should do it as much as possible. As a wrestling journalist, what's your perception of the creative process? I mean, it's really just Vince, you know? I mean, let's be honest. Like, there are pitches from other people, but... I mean, for the most part, it's just what Vince wants, it feels like, you know? So it could always be better, but also, you know, I'm really enjoying everything on SmackDown. And there are tons of things that I do enjoy about, you know, about the product and stuff. So, you know, I mean, in terms of creative, it's a hard job. Like, making five hours, not even it's more than five hours with 205 Live, so six hours, seven hours of TV a week live. I mean, that is... No easy task. And as a man who worked in television, I do have an immense amount of respect for what the creative team does there. I mean, it's not easy to be constantly thinking of ideas to surprise people, to make things interesting, to evoke emotion from people, to, to make something they're going to remember forever. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. And so... I mean, I personally, I try my best to focus on the things that I liked while watching wrestling and not necessarily the things that I didn't like while watching wrestling because it's not an easy job. Yeah, I guess they never get the praise really when something goes right and they always get the blame when something goes wrong. Yeah, and there's not credits either, so you don't even really know who's doing it. And it's, it's an interesting situation, but, you know, I, I, I have all the respect in the world for what the creative team does. It's a thankless job. Yeah. Mm. That's right. Uh, it's the world. 
Former WWE wrestler Chavo Guerrero Jr. is from the legendary Guerrero wrestling family. He's also a producer at the promotion Lucha Underground and currently he's a consultant on the Netflix show Glow, a fully scripted TV show about wrestling, starring Alison Brie, Mark Maron and actually a few wrestlers as well. So we've looked at how TV writers have shaped a wrestling show, but how do wrestlers shape a TV show? Here's Chavo. So with Glow, I was approached by the executive producers and actually through the set coordinator, which is Shana Duggins. And they were they're very, very smart. You can see their, their work in other shows. But they realized that they put a wrestling show together and they needed a wrestling expert, if you call it. So uh, I got the call. I interviewed for the show, and uh, I got the job. So that's kind of how I became part of the show, and, and the job I got was with, was a wrestling. None of us really knew what my role would be in the actual show, you know. It was wrestling coordinator, but it morphed into a whole lot. I mean, I was ordering the rings, involved in set design, you know, where to put the rings, and how is the wrestling, you know, um, arena set up, and uh, involved in kind of script review, if you call it, you know, I was having meetings with with the writers and and giving them my stories, and they're you know they're taking notes, and um, just it just really morphed into like anything. Right? The show, I guess, it's a show about a new startup wrestling company, you know, I guess, with startup wrestling girls that don't know anything about wrestling. So I kind of was involved in kind of any wrestling aspect of the show I was kind of involved in. So it was a lot. <laughs> That's great. And is it true your um, uncle was a trainer on the original Glow? My uncle Mondo was the original trainer to the original girls. Yes, that is true. And that didn't, that didn't hurt when I was doing my interview, for sure. <laughs> Alison Bree's spoken quite highly of you in particular. Were there any actors that you felt were naturals and could then go on and make a sideway move into wrestling if their acting career didn't follow through? Sure. So any, every one of those, those actresses, I could train them to have an actual match, like at a WrestleMania, or WrestleMania moment, if you want to call it, for sure, 100%. But they're all, I loved every one of them. They were, so, they were such a pleasure to work with in, in the ring every day and just get them in. And every one of them was so, was so good. Allison was, she's an athlete that didn't know that she was an athlete, put it that way. You know, she's always done theater and that kind of stuff. And maybe a little bit as a kid, but she came in not really, you know, doing, you know, CrossFit training, that kind of stuff, but coming in the ring, everybody had the reservations, but once we kind of showed them and powered them and showed them how actually strong they were, you know, and how athletic everyone actually really is, from the girl, from what the girls tell me was that we, and when I say we, it's me and uh, the other stunt, uh, stunt girls, Shauna Benjamin and Helena Barrett, we really empowered them to make them do things they never thought that they could actually do. And there was times when they'd be, you know, Hearing up and saying thank you, we never knew we had this in us, you know. So that's to me that's so rewarding. That's the most one of these girls. I love every one of them. Yeah, maybe they'll get the wrestling bug and eventually have that WrestleMania moment. Who knows? They do, and, every, and so you saying that Allison was doing an interview, and somebody said, "Well, we think it wasn't fake." And she totally defended it. No, what? What are you talking about? I was in the ring every day bumping and falling. That's not fake. And she's defending it. Every one of these girls loves wrestling. In fact, I had a small independent show in Los Angeles two nights ago, and four of the actresses came to the show and sat front row because of the fact they not just support me, but they love wrestling. And that's something I wanted them to do. You know, the typical wrestling training 
you know, when you're first training somebody, kind of, you know, beating them up and kind of really toughen them up. And I didn't want to go that route. I really wanted these girls to fall in love with wrestling and fall in love with the show and not just doing it because of the show. But I get calls and text from them all the time saying, we miss wrestling, we miss being in the ring. We strangely love getting falling on our backs now, <laughs> you know. So I, I'm really, really glad that they actually do do that, you know, because they do love it. So that gives a little insight into what the world of a writer is like, what happens if creative has nothing for you, and also how wrestling is written in other mediums. Again, it's perhaps something to explore a bit further in the future. That's it for this episode, and also that's it for this series. We hope you enjoyed our deep dives into intergender wrestling, British scene, Donald Trump, the dirt sheets, national identity, and the writer's room, and have found the stories along the way interesting and informative. Thanks to all our guests across this series and this episode. Thanks to Brad Maddox. He is now pursuing a career in acting. Chavo Guerrero Jr. is a consultant on GLOW, starring Alison Brie and Mark Maron. That's streaming on Netflix now. Former WWE writer Court Bauer runs the MLW Network at mlwradio.com and is on Twitter at Court Bauer. Ryan Satin is the editor of prowrestlingsheet.com. Thanks also to our guests across the series, Triple H, Finn Balor, William Regal, Neville, Klondike Kate, Dave Meltzer, Rikishi, Abby Arthur, Sam Adonis, Heather Bandenberg, Abby Laith, Chris Levine, Andy Quilden, Robbie Brookside, Fred Dynage and Bob Smuda. It's taken a long time to put together. The World According to Wrestling is produced by myself, Danny Smith, Ben Higgs and Rob Brandon. It's edited by Danny Smith and it's mixed by Will Berger. The music and jingles are from We Am Sam. The visual identity is from the design practice of James Lunn and the illustrations are from the pen of Paul Cooper. That's the end of Series 2. We'll speak to you again in the future. Till next time. Ta-ra! That's life, life in the ring. No doubt. And anyway, when they die, they come back to life. And then it's better than when they were dead. Because they break in new heads and new legs. And gender politics and race politics and boundaries. And anyway, none of it's real. You sure? Well, not in a physical violence sense. Hit it, hit it. Okay. Hit it.